everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper. So excited to be here with you today. We have a great show. We have two segments of the show. So first, we're going to be talking to Laura Hazard Owens and Andrew Perez about a very important story. It's kind of a meta story. It's a story about a story, an infuriating story about a 10-year-old girl who had to travel across state lines to access an abortion. And then Glenn Kessler, friend of show, I mean, I'm being sarcastic, friend of show, Glenn Kessler, at the Washington Post, who's a fact checker, said it wasn't true, but it turns out that his claim wasn't true. So we're going to get into that story. And then during the second half, we have on legendary reporter Bob Shear, Robert Shear of Shear Post. He has written for the LA Times. He was involved in Ramparts, the legendary outlet Ramparts that helped convince Martin Luther King it was time to oppose the Vietnam War. We'll be talking about his reporting around the world, basically. So let's bring in our first two guests. Very excited. They are both making their Katie Helper Show debut. So you know that Katie Helper Show bump, things are really going to change for them. They may get good jobs at places like the Neiman Lab and Lever News. Laura Hazard-Owen is the editor of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard University's Neiman Foundation. She writes a weekly column on fake news and misinformation research. Previously, the deputy editor of Neiman Lab. Before that, she was the managing editor of Gigaom and wrote about book publishing for seven years. Andrew Perry is a senior editor and reporter at The Lever, covering money and influence. So Laura and Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Of course. So this is a really important story. And full disclosure, one of the reasons I was so frustrated by this story, first, the story is frustrating that a 10-year-old was pregnant at all then had to travel across state lines to access an abortion, then that a fact checker at the Washington Post suggested that this story wasn't true or couldn't be verified. And then I know personally, we had done something on another show I do, where we had done a segment about this. And then my co-host, in all fairness to him, I would have done the same thing, was like, oh yeah, we got to cut that out because it turns out that story isn't true. So let's go through what the story is, what really happened, and then how it was reported on. Laura, you have a piece that you wrote at the Neiman Lab called Unimaginable Abortion Stories Will Become More Common. Is American journalism ready in America after the end of Roe v. Wade? One brave source on the record is often the best we're going to get. Countless other stories will never be told. So can you tell us how you heard about the story and how you heard about the story about the story and what made you want to report on it? Sure, yeah. So um, I read the column in the Washington Post, um, which is by their columnist, Glenn Kessler, who does sort of fact-checking the news um, type of column. And um, he basically called into question the story had, that had appeared in a local newspaper, um, the Indianapolis Star, about um, a 10-year-old who had allegedly crossed state lines to receive an abortion. She had to travel to Indiana to get it because it wasn't legal in Ohio where she lived. 
So the source on the record in that story, so meaning the person who was saying that this had happened, was the doctor who performed the abortion on the 10-year-old. She used her real name. She said that this had happened and, and that this patient had traveled to her and that she was 10 years old. And the column that originally ran in the Washington Post by Glenn Kessler, their columnist, called it a one-source story. So meaning like the only person speaking on the record is one person and wrote the only source cited for the anecdote was Bernard, the doctor who performed the abortion. I mean, I just, I think like when I saw that a little alarm bell went off because the doctor who was using her real name going on the record saying that she performed the abortion, like that's a great source. Like that's really solid. That's not like a he said, she said kind of thing. So that was what first got my attention. And then you wrote to Glenn Kessler? Yeah. So I decided that I would report on the story. Um, I, I noticed, I noticed this column. And then I think a couple of days after the column came out, we started hearing from the reporters who had worked on the original story that the Indianapolis Star that there was indeed this this court case where somebody had raped a 10-year-old. And, and so the story that he had called into question was proven true. And I just wanted to write about it right away. So at that point, it had sort of been picked up by a lot of conservative media. Glenn Kessler's column is an example of, you know, just like the Wall Street Journal called it a, a story too, like an abortion story too good to be true, as in like, this seems so awful. Like this seems so, you know, like the exact kind of thing that like pro-choice people are arguing will happen if abortion rights fall in this country, um, you know, too good to confirm, um, which is just a really crazy thing to say. So um, that column in the Washington Post kind of opened the door to these other takes from the conservative media sort of casting doubt on the story. We have some other images we can show. So we have, as you mentioned, the an abortion story too good to confirm. Biden told a tale of a 10-year-old rape victim that no one can identify because Biden had mentioned the story when he signed an executive action. And here is a Fox News headline, Biden cited story of a 10-year-old Ohio rape victim needing abortion, still not verified by fact checkers. Then we also have... In your piece, you write that the Post column opened the door to worse takes. And then you quote Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost telling USA Today's Ohio Network Burr on Tuesday, every day that goes by, the more likely that this is a fabrication. I know the cops and prosecutors in this state, there's not one of them that wouldn't be turning over every rock looking for this guy and they should have charged him. Fame on the Indianapolis paper that ran this thing on a single source who has an obvious axe to grind. So you then emailed Kessler. He told you, this story is an interesting example of how news can be widely shared these days. It was picked up by outlets around the world and it was based on one source, someone who was an activist in one side of the debate without an apparent effort to confirm it. This fact check added more context than was updated once there was a new development. So he's framing the doctor as an activist? Right. So I got in touch with him after... The follow-up stories had come out confirming that this was true and that this had happened. And that was the point where he gave me uh, that quote that you just saw on the screen. Andrew, what made you interested in the story? I think it was actually that quote. You know, I'd seen the column. Uh, and then when I saw him give that quote to, to Lauren to Neiman Lab, I just thought it was a pretty, uh, pretty insane take altogether. You know, the idea that, you know, this this doctor had to be lying um, is, is just pretty, pretty ridiculous. Right. Like it's so someone really put their neck out there to, to share this story. 
And to, and to like, just, you know, denigrate the person that way just made me pretty skeptical. And, you know, him also saying that, like, that there was no effort to verify. I'm not really sure he has any clue what effort there was to verify at the Indianapolis Star or the, the, the paper that subsequently reported the new news here that there had been arrest made. Like those reporters, their, their process seemed to be a lot more thorough than, than anything uh, Glenn Kessler decided to throw at them in this fact checker column. And so then what do you do? So in the original column, he said that none of the county officials he contacted were aware of such a case in their areas, um, you know, both in like Columbus and Toledo, Cleveland, et cetera. And then he updated his column to say that Franklin County officials did not offer a response when he reached out to them, unlike other Ohio County agencies. So I wanted to see if that was true. And, you know, what, what we found is that that was not true at all. Um, the Franklin County officials did reach out, did reply to him, did respond. And what they told him is that they wouldn't be able to comment on specific cases because there are restrictions under Ohio law pertaining to child cases. And that sort of stands to reason, right? Like you would expect that child services cases to be considered confidential under many state laws. And, and I think there are some like federal statutes here, too. But what we ended up hearing from the Post was that he'd actually missed this email. Which we can actually show. So first you have the email from Glenn Kessler. I read a column in which I try to verify facts in the news. You may have seen the reports about a 10-year-old who was raped and needed an abortion and was forced to travel to Indiana. The article is based on a statement by a doctor who claims to have treated the child, but no other information was provided. My understanding was that under Ohio law, any knowledge of such a case would need to be reported to child services. So this is a bit of a shot in the dark, but have you heard of any such recent case in Franklin County? I'm checking with other large counties as well. Thank you, Glenn Kessler. And then we see the response from Valencia Turner, who writes, Good morning, Mr. Kessler. You are correct that a physician as a mandated reporter under Ohio Revised Code 2151.421 would be required to report any case of known or suspected physical, sexual, or emotional abuse or neglect to their local child welfare or law enforcement agency. Children's services agencies are prohibited from sharing information regarding specific cases pursuant to Ohio Revised Code. Children's services agencies always wish to protect and respect the privacy of those we serve. Thank you. I think that says it all, right? Like, they, they say pretty flatly, like, they, they cite several statutes saying they would not be able to talk about this. So there, there are laws on the books barring uh, ch children's service agencies from sharing this information. But he, for some reason, thought that he was going to get them to share that information by, you know, cold emailing them, asking them if they'd ever heard about it, a case in their area with where a child was victimized. Um, it's it's just what an insane process here, right? Like I, there was nothing he was going to find, but instead he, you know, raised all these questions that then got weaponized by by conservative media. Yeah, I think one thing that I um, heard a lot of after I published my story um, from. Reporters who have been reporting on sexual abuse and rape cases for a long, long time is that like these are really, really hard to report out because um, the first of all, because so few people will go on the record. And second of all, because like the victims are um, are like their names are kept private in so many cases. It's just it's very complicated and it's not something that you're going to be able to just like send an email and be like, oh, yeah, like this happened. Like, I mean, it's just not how this kind of reporting works. Um, and it sort of like leads to women not being believed for all the good reasons that these privacy laws are in place. It means that a lot of this information is just not going to be um, public. 
And Andrew, by the way, how did you get your hands on those emails? Yeah, um, I filed a request to um, the Franklin County Children's Services just asking them for any correspondence between their public information office and, and Glenn Kessler, like in the days, around the days where he filed his column. They got back to us relatively quickly. We didn't even, we didn't pay anything for it. We ended up going to other county agencies now too, and we're, we're waiting on those requests. Um, but, you know, another one of the requests we found, um, someone said like, we haven't heard about this case, but if we had, we wouldn't be able to talk about it with you. So he, he should have very well known that there were confidentiality restrictions here that should most certainly have been mentioned in his column um, because, though you know, it would also sort of negate the entire premise. And if you go to the Washington Post now, it still says a one-story source about a 10-year-old and an abortion goes viral. Then it does under the headline and under the quote from Biden, it does have update and arrest has been made in this case, providing additional confirmation, more details below, but it's still fairly misleading. I mean, the headline in itself is fairly misleading because it makes it look like it's a story that shouldn't be viral. Yeah, this shit should have been taken immediately off the website. In fact, it should just never have been published. Like, they they really, like, it's it's kind of remarkable from, like, conception to execution that this piece was conceived, uh, written, edited, and, pu- and published to the web and allowed to stay on, especially after the, you know, the news that, we, that we've, like, since heard that, that someone was arrested for committing this crime. I was also struck by the fact that Kessler kind of casually said that an abortion by 10-year-olds is rare. Was that it? I think the original sentence in the original article, which has since been changed, was an abortion by a 10-year-old. Pretty rare is what he wrote in the piece originally. And what did you find when you looked into that claim, Laura? He actually cited in his in his piece, in his original piece, um, he wrote the Columbus Dispatch reported that in 2020, 52 people under the age of 15 received an abortion in Ohio. Um, So my colleague and I were reading that and she was like, well, that's like one person a week under the age of 15 in Ohio getting an abortion. And that's abortions that like are reported. Um, And that's during the pandemic when a lot of abortion clinics and other medical care was closed. So I don't think one a week is rare. And I believe that the Columbus Dispatch has since done some following follow-up reporting showing that the numbers are actually higher than that, um, you know, post-pandemic um, times. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's not as rare. It's not nearly as rare as people want to believe. And I, I understand not wanting to believe it because it's so horrible. You can't believe it can be true. But... In your piece, you talk about how the age of puberty has actually become lower because of COVID or studies suggest that. Yeah. So this was people, some people were like, why did you include this in the piece? Um, And I included it in the piece because I thought it was interesting. I have a daughter who is almost nine. um, And I saw some studies recently and some reporting recently suggesting that COVID appears to have increased early onset puberty around the world. So the reason that I included this in the story is because I think people don't want to believe that a 10-year-old or a child younger than 10 could get pregnant. Um, They want to think it's just not possible biologically. And if puberty is happening earlier, then 10-year-olds are not going to be the youngest girls that we see getting pregnant. It can be eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds. So eight-year-olds getting their period makes this 
possible. And it makes the stories that I call unbelievable in the headline more possible. That's why I wanted to mention that in the piece, because I think a lot of people still think that getting your period is something that happens when you're 12 or 13. And so, of course, you couldn't get pregnant before that. That's crazy. Um, And that's just clearly not the case. Even I, when I heard it, as much as I'm inclined to believe something like this would happen, I still, I was like hoping that it wasn't true because it was just so horrible. Yeah. But of course, I wouldn't have written a piece suggesting it wasn't true based on that. Yeah. You could just wait. I mean, you could just not publish the piece. That's what I end up coming back to is you don't, this doesn't need to be the thing you decide you're going to fact check. Or you can wait until you can fact check it. It is really unbelievable that it's still up there. Yeah, especially since, you know, um, most people are not going to go back um, and read a correction. Um, I think this story may have been big enough that when people, when the arrest happened, that made actually probably made bigger headlines than this story did. But at that point, it had been already been picked up in lots of other places. Most people are just not going to go back and correct the first thing, the first impression that they had. Conservatives are definitely not going back to like assess how they handled this. In fact, what you saw like right after that is they started weaponizing the person's immigration status who committed this crime. That's where they went, right? It's not like, oh, like how did how did I screw up? It's like what what next can we attack? That's just like clearly what was gonna happen. And yeah, I don't I don't think many of those people stopped to read either of our stories or uh the, the Washington Post's, you know, sort of ham-handed updates and corrections. Then I, of course, heard people who had said it wasn't true. And when they had to backtrack and say, okay, it was true, they were like, oh, but that's why it's so terrible that these journalists in the initial case reported this way because we had to doubt it. Of course, we were going to doubt it. But I think that one of the really important things about your piece, Laura, which you kind of also back up, Andrew, is that reporting in the time of post-Roe is going to present certain challenges. Right. So if people are getting an abortion and that's now illegal in their state, then that means they're technically criminals who are not going to want to give their names because what they're doing is illegal. So how do you report those stories? I mean, if you want to tell stories of the women and the children who are getting abortions and you're going to have to figure out a way to do it, if you think it's an important story, um, then you may have to reconsider some of the sort of like journalistic conventions that we're taught, which are things like everybody has to be on the record. There are, you know, there are two sides for every story. The other thing I think that I've thought about a lot is Kessler's use of the word activist to describe the doctor who performed the abortion. So does getting an abortion now mean you're an activist and there needs to be like a pro-life activist on the other side saying it didn't happen. It just doesn't make sense. And when you, when you start to think about this fitting into that sort of like traditional journalistic framework, it just starts to seem impossible and crazy. So like journalists definitely still need to do the work. They need to make sure that their reporting is true, but sometimes you're not going to have that sort of like airtight. I spoke to XYZ, like full name, age X, who lives in X state where abortion is illegal. It's just not going to, it's not going to work that way. And like, otherwise you're not going to be telling these women's stories. Glenn Kessler has done this a lot. His fact-checking has been called into question a lot. Any supporter of Bernie Sanders will know that. I think to me, this is just another example of how he was probably moved, like didn't want this to be true. I don't know, I'm not in his mind, but I could imagine that this is something he just didn't want to be true and let that desire or his view of abortion providers as activists guide his alleged fact-checking. And it's really scary when... 
the people who are supposed to be doing the fact-checking and objective are either, you know, emotionally invested or ideologically invested because it suggests an objectivity that may not be there. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not, um, I don't know Glenn Kessler's politics. I haven't read a ton of his stuff. What I would say is that since this story came out, there have been so many other stories about, um, again, quote unquote, unbelievable abortion stories, women being forced to carry um, fetuses that will not survive um, to term, you know, like, I mean, they're just all these stories are coming out. And so I think that things that people maybe didn't more, many more things that people didn't want to think were possible um, are going to, are going to come out. Um, I think that's happening now. What are you guys working on now? I'm contacting the other county agencies and waiting to hear back from uh, at least one more. I'm like very curious to see going forward what I technically cover and what we write about at Neiman Lab is innovation and journalism. And I'm really curious to see sort of how these stories are told going forward when abortion is going to be illegal in many states. I think that this whole little saga serves as kind of a warning sign for how like some reporting can go wrong. I also think it's a great example of like why we need local journalists because they are the ones in Ohio and Indiana who broke this story. One of the ones who broke the story was the only reporter in the courtroom when this man who raped the 10-year-old was accused. We need those local reporters telling these stories. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes. Well, thank you guys so much for joining. Where can people find your work? You can find my work at levernews.com. I and my colleagues are at Neiman Lab, N-I-E-M-A-N-L-A-B dot org. Thank you so much, Laura and Andrew. Everyone, make sure that you check the links that we did put in the description. All right, we are bringing on a real legend. So excited to have him. Bob Shear is the editor of Shear Post. He has written eight books, including two this decade, The Great American Stick-Up, How Reagan Republicans and Clinton Democrats Enriched Wall Street While Mugging Main Street. And his newest book is They Know Everything About You, How Data Collecting Corporations and Snooping Government Agencies Are Destroying Democracy. He's a clinical professor of communications at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. He has interviewed Jimmy Carter, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and others between 1964 and 1969. He was Vietnam correspondent, managing editor, and editor-in-chief of Ramparts Magazine. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Hi. Listen, Hi. I want to correct you on one thing. Uh, I'm the publisher of SharePost. But uh, you said I'm the editor. The editor is Narda Zacchino, oh, okay. uh, a deserved legend in journalism, former associate editor of the LA Times, there for 36 years, and then in the Hearst organization at the San Francisco Chronicle. And the reason I bring that up is uh, we're, we're talking about the future of journalism. I don't think it is with the Washington Post anymore. I don't think it's with Jeff Bezos. You know, obviously, billionaire journalism is one model, but I'm thrilled that Narda Zacchino, she is my wife, but I'm thrilled that she's taking the best standards of traditional journalism and bringing it to internet journalism. And yeah, we operate on a shoestring. We do try to pay everybody, but that's not going to be at the cost of good journalism. So I just want to throw it out there. And I got a comment on the previous half hour. I, I think what these people are doing is great journalism. But I want to point out something. When you talk about domestic issues, including abortion, but you could be talking about the economy, you could talk about race, gender, 
you will get at the truth eventually, unless we really become a closed society. Because it's difficult for governments to lie, be they the federal, state government, about domestic. And, and with persistence, you can get it. The subject that troubles me, and I think we're here to talk about, is basically foreign policy. And there, governments lie everywhere in the world with impunity. Impunity. And they do secret stuff. They, they you know, <laughs> whether it's the CIA or the OKGB or anybody, and it takes you, for instance, in the case of Vietnam, which I did cover, and I was in Vietnam uh, at the time of the famous Gulf of Tonkin incident where North Vietnam was supposed to have attacked American ships. And 20 years later, I was working at the LA Times and we finally got the documents that said it was all a fraud. There was no second Gulf of Tonkin incident. The government knew it. Lyndon Johnson knew it. So my concern is that when we talk about foreign policy, which after all has very profound implication of destroying the whole world and getting a lot of people killed and so forth, as we saw with George W. Bush in the Gulf War, uh, the fact of the matter is they lie with impunity. And that's obviously happening in the Ukraine on both on all sides. Uh, it happened in Afghanistan on all sides. And uh, there, we really, the, the challenge of independent journalism uh, is it, it's, it's a real challenge. And it means going up against ideas of patriotism and nationalism, uh, you know, and it, it's very difficult. And then you get into red baiting and McCarthyism and anybody who disagrees with the government's analysis on the Ukraine, they must be a Putin agent. And we're living in a very ugly time now. I'll just throw in my two cents. For my money, this is much more difficult time to report than during the height of the Cold War and in Vietnam, because there was a peace movement. There were critics. There were people, even in the mainstream media, who challenged the dominant narrative. We had American troops involved, you know, skin in the game. Now we're just supplying lethal weapons to others. And I have never lived in a time that, for my money, is more frightening and in which the media has been more irresponsible. That's my little editorial. I, I just wanted to throw it out there. I respect the two people you had. Journalism is always going to be tough. These days, it's not going to be financially rewarded unless you work for some fat cat who likes the idea. But, you know, I'm, I, I don't put down journalists when I put down the product, journalism. And I must say, one reason I like going on shows like this, I think I, I want to make people aware that we're talking about the big ball game here. You know, if we're talking about the possibility of nuclear war. We're talking about, you know, China and the U.S. getting it on, Russia and the U.S. getting it on. We are talking about the very real possibility of the end of the humanity. I'm the guy who talked to Ronald Reagan uh, and the uh, first President Bush about winnable nuclear war. I wrote those stories for the LA Times. And I covered this issue of arms control in the old Soviet Union and in Washington as well. I've never experienced this, such a time about war. It's treated like a video game or something. Oh, we're winning. And like, you know, oh, we blasted in Crimea, you know. Well, are their schools a fair game? Are their civilians fair game? It's so one-sided. I mean, I was in Israel and Egypt during, or at the end of the Six-Day War. I was in Vietnam, Cambodia, a lot of different places. I've never seen reporting be this one-sided. That's really the heart of it. You know, I'm not saying virtue is on the Russian side or 
on the Ukrainian side, that's to figure out once you know what the facts are. But the reporting is the most extremely biased reporting that I've seen. You know, if you dare challenge the narrative, as some, you know, heroic journalists have done, including Chris Hedges, who writes for us at SharePost, wow, they're going to be smeared. Matt Saibi, who you've done work with. I mean, that guy is just doing common sense reporting. He has a big knowledge base. He's familiarity with the languages. He's covered the region. But if he says something that goes against the narrative, everybody's going to, they want to toss him in jail eventually. So it's a very ugly time. And we're going to talk more about international foreign policy. But I do think that there is also a bias that we see, whether it's, I mean, the thing that we just spoke about with Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post and who gets to keep his piece up as is, basically, with some correction, but that you can barely tell, or the way uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times writes about Biden. I mean, there's a lot of embedded praise of Biden, but I think you're right that it's it's the worst when it comes to foreign policy. Look, the biggest bias of the Washington Post is we have the healthiest development in our economy in a long time of a, of a labor movement developing, of the right to People in Amazon and, you know, everywhere else, Starbucks to organize, to get better working conditions. That's the big issue, by the way, outside of the survival of the planet in terms of war and climate change, is whether people throughout the world who make all this stuff that we consume get paid decent wages and whether environmental concerns are observed. And when you have your major newspapers now beholden to the richest People who have basically been involved in the rape of the planet and waste of resources and excessive consumption and so forth, you know, you're not getting basic reporting, again, that we used to have. I grew up in New York City, and whether a paper was considered conservative or not, they had to report honestly on labor strikes and working conditions. And even whether it was the Daily News or the New York Times, it didn't matter. You just had too many people out there who would have complained, you know, and that's not happening now. You know, we're going to go to war with China about what? I mean, there are legitimate criticisms to make of China. Do they have labor unions? No, that are good and fair and open. Are they paying their workers enough? No. You know, are we party to that in getting all these cheap goods? Yes, but there's no debate about it. The big human rights problem in China is not the Uyghurs, you know, it's the people, the women off the farms assembling our iPhones. What are their rights? Can they organize? Can they go? You don't hear anything about that. And I can assure you that Jeff Bezos' own Washington Post is not going to go touch that. Amazon has made this huge fortune off the exploitation of Chinese labor. So, you know, when foreign policy is not just about war and peace, or of course it often is, it's about, you know, who's serving people. And what we're going to now trying to pick a fight with China over Taiwan. I mean, my goodness, you know, Taiwan, who runs those factories? It's Foxconn, which is a Taiwanese company. The, the connection economically between that and mainland China is like that. This is a phony issue now. So why do you think Pelosi did what she did? And now you have these other members of Congress going over there. I think the Democrats, uh, and you can quote me on this, have be, uh, are clearly the war party. That doesn't mean they don't get the Republicans enthusiastic. The Republicans can be as jingoistic as anybody. But what the Democrat Party has done, they have two major contradictions as far as I can see. One, they're locally in every city on the side of the police 
the law enforcement, the big budgets. That's how city governments operate. And every city where Occupy was smashed with, had a Democratic mayor at that time. Maybe New York had an so-called independent, but now he's thought to be an enlightened moderate. But the big issue there is that the Democrats act strong and patriotic when there's war. And that doesn't mean the Republicans are incapable of it. But the fact of the matter is Eisenhower was the least warlike of our major presidents. And Harry Truman, who somehow people like about, he's the one that got the whole Cold War going. And again, with a tremendous amount of deceit involved. But, you know, I think the reason Nancy Pelosi went there, is this the only ticket they got to ride? Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.